1795, shipping and handling included. I want to welcome you on this first day of the year. Also want to uh, thank the congregation once again for the tremendous gift that you gave Kathy and me as we labor with you a couple of weeks ago on a Wednesday evening. And uh, we really appreciate your generosity and just want you to be aware of that as well. And again, a reminder, there will be no evening services tonight uh, due to the holiday. Good people chance to uh, spend some time with family and friends. Uh, but we're glad that you are with us today. First day of the year, and it's on the Lord's Day. I like it. It uh, seems appropriate that we be together on the very first day of the year and start our, our year with thoughts about what God would have us to do and how he'd have us to live. Uh, New Year's resolutions are always a time that are taken a thoughtfulness to. Some people more thought than others. Some people just make a quick thought. We make a quick promise, a resolution. That's what a resolution is. It's a promise for the new year to make a change in life. And no matter what that resolution is for you, it is yours. And I hope that you can keep it. Uh, probably it is some, t- some form or another to improve your life in the coming year. Some people make resolutions to do something, to a change a negative, get rid of a bad habit. Others will make a resolution to do, put on a positive habit, do something positive in their life. And I found on the internet what, I don't know if it's how accurate it is, but it's some good thoughts here that New Year's resolutions go back to 153 B.C. January, this article said, was named after the Roman mythical god Janus. Janus is an interesting god. He had two faces, one looking back and one looking ahead. Now, I know children always thought mom and dad had eyes in the back of their head. And uh, maybe they do. But uh, Janus was a mythological god that had a face going forward and then a face going backward. The Romans, on December 31st, imagined Janus looking back and backward into the old year. And also looking forward to the new year that was coming. And therefore it became a symbolic time for Romans to make resolutions for the new year to forgive enemies for the troubles of the past. They believed that Janus could forgive them for their wrongdoings in the previous year. Therefore, they would give gifts and make promises, believing that he would see this and bless them in the year ahead. Thus, the author said, New Year's resolutions were born. Don't know if it's true. Kind of interesting. It sounds good. Could be the way they came about back in ancient Rome of 153 B.C. Did you make any New Year's resolutions last year? How did you do? If you're like me, some of them you kept, and some of them now, they kind of went by the wayside after a while. Sometimes those resolutions that you make in good faith, wanting to be successful in them, but other circumstances happen. It may be that you wanted to get in shape, do work out more, and then on some day you did like I did on the third Sunday of the year, I heard something snap in my right knee. And that kept me from doing much for a while. And then I had to have knee surgery a couple months later. Uh, Sometimes things happen called life 
we get sidetracked. Sometimes it could be a job, it can be a loss of a job, things that change. And it impacts us in a way that maybe some of those resolutions that we started in good conscience, wanting to do them just beyond our control, we couldn't. And then sometimes it's because we just weren't disciplined enough to complete them. How about this year? Have you made resolutions for the new year? I've made a couple, and I'll keep them to myself for right now. And hopefully, on this first day of the year, I'll be successful. I haven't broken any yet, so I'm batting a thousand right now. I like the idea of making New Year's resolutions. I think it's okay. It may be a good idea. It does give us a chance to ponder and to reflect on looking back, reflecting on the successes that a person has had in the past year so that they might build on them. Looking at the failures that they had so that they might make corrections. They might do better at those things. And I think that's something that the Bible calls repentance. Knowing that I did something that I failed in and I need to make a change to do better. And uh, maybe that's why we, the first of the year, everybody or many people just say, I'm going to get in better shape, I'm going to eat more healthy, you know, I'm going to take better care of my body, I'm going to see the doctor regularly, I'm going to do all these wonderful things to help my physical self. And maybe they do some something like that spiritually as well and say, I'm going to read my Bible every day. In fact, they'll say, I'm going to be so involved in it. I'm going to read through the entire Bible every month. It's not impossible. It can be done, but maybe you started a little bit too large. It is very detailed, meticulous sometimes. And you have to discipline and have the time to do so. But if a person would spend maybe three or four hours a day in reading the Bible, they might be able to read it in a month. You can maybe read it even faster than that. I don't know, depending on your reading speed. But what will happen sometimes is that you get discouraged. Something happens, and interrupts it, and then you just quit. Maybe you get out of it. But what I like is that every morning is the beginning of a new year from that point forward. So if you mess up today, January 2nd to January 2nd is another new year. You know, we don't have to keep it on the calendar. But on this morning, on this first day of 2017... I want to call on you to reflect on how you lived in Christ in the last year and how do you purpose to live in Christ this year. As I thought about these comments, I've just basically tried to make them easy for you to remember. I think the very first one, and they all start with a C, so you'll hear the words that come out. The very first one is we need to reflect on our commitment. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, We wanted to be his disciple. In verse 38, he said, A man must, and he who does not take his cross and follow after me, he is not worthy of me. Verse 39, he who has found his life will lose it. He who has lost his life for my sake will find it. A little bit stronger terms perhaps, but nonetheless, it's maybe just a little bit more broadened out as he built on this in teaching in Luke that Luke writes for us in verse 25 of chapter 14. Now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Then he goes on to illustrate that there's a count that you have to count the cost of being a disciple in Christ, of following him. 
commitment. Commitment is a word that is all-encompassing. It's, you know, a few years ago we had a we had it modified with the word total. Total commitment. Doesn't commitment imply totality? If you're committed, aren't you totally committed? Or are you just partially committed? And is partially committed just really committed? I don't know why we need the adjective total to modify it, because it does say totality. But I do liken it to perhaps, when we think of total commitment, a young couple that gets married. Young. In their 20s, maybe. Maybe 20. Maybe a little older. Do they really understand what 60 years means? You know, when I do marriage counseling, premarital counseling, sometimes I say to a couple, I say, look, you're 23. And by all mortality tables, you could easily live to 83. You know, that's 60 years. And I turn to him and say, you know how very attractive and lovely her, in her long brown hair or blonde hair is, or red hair, or whatever color it is, and how she looks just, wow. She's not going to look that way in 60 years. The body's going to change a little bit. And I tell her the same thing. I say, you see how buff and in shape those six-pack abs, you know, how he's looking right now? He's not going to look that way in 60, in 60 years. You know, it's going to change. But total commitment, commitment means that I'm in it for the long haul. But in marriage, they have this idea of commitment, you know, forsaking all others for richer or poorer, you know, in sickness and in health. They haven't experienced those things. And so they really don't have a connectedness to what total commitment is. And so maybe commitment is part of a growth process as well. But Paul said in Romans chapter 12, when we think of commitment, he said, verses 1 and 2, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. That very first verse there, verse 1, is... Looking back, I believe, on the whole burnt offering that we read about in Leviticus, where the worshiper would bring a bull or a ram, a goat, it would bring an animal to be offered, and the entire animal would be burned to God. It was truly a worship offering, because none of it would be taken by the priest, none of it would be taken by the worshiper. It was all burned and given to God. And he goes on to say, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. How do you become a living sacrifice? By not being allowing the world to press you into its mold. By being transformed by the renewing of your mind. We do that as we walk with Christ, as we read the word that he's given to us. Peter said it in this fashion, perhaps in 1 Peter chapter 2. He's talking about those who have been persecuted, who are undergoing persecution. And he says in verse 21, my heading says, Christ is our example. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an, an example for you to follow in his steps. 
who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. That's how we do it. We entrust ourselves to God because he's in control. You give it to him no matter what happens, and you can endure that life. That's how you live a life of commitment, entrusting yourself to God. And so, as Paul would say to the Ephesian elders, as he would leave them at the island of Miletus, one of my favorite passages in Scripture, in Acts chapter 20. And he would say, as he was leaving them, and now I come, verse 32, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I entrust you to God's grace. To his word, to God himself, the word of his grace, that you'll be okay. That you'll be built up and sanctified, set apart. That's a life of commitment. We may grow into it day by day, but as Jesus said, if you're going to be my disciple, you must decide today to deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. But then what else might be involved in this? We know it's a life of commitment, and then it bears upon us to live a life of character. I can't think of maybe any better place when I think of Christian character than the Beatitudes. Jesus' common teaching, by the words that we know that are used here, uh, he said in verse 3 of chapter 5, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And when you're persecuted... For righteousness, you put yourself in that group in the last two verses as those who were the prophets of God who were before you. Summarization of verses 11 and 12. But think about those. Poor in spirit, humble, relying on no one but God. You are absolutely have nothing. Only God is your hope. Mourning for the sins, for your sins and for the sins of the world. You know, when we start doing that, it will change our outlook on people. I get angry when I see some of the things that are going on in the world today. How people are mistreating other people. What's going on in the Middle East with ISIS? What's going on in, our, in cities across the nation with various social political movements? Law enforcement officers being ambushed in the line of duty. You know, terrible things. But if we're not mourning for the sins of the world, we're not going to be out going to those people to try to convince them and change them by introducing them to Christ. And when we become gentle, meek is the King James Version, maybe the American Standard, strength under control, inherit the earth. As you have it all, but you're in control, and you are going to conduct yourself as one with great power, but with tenderness compassion. 
hungering and thirsting for righteousness, building on those things that you learn of in the Scripture, just wanting more and more because you fall in love. And as we sing the song once in a while, it says, I keep falling in love with Him over and over and over and over again. That's what it is. Falling in love with Christ once again. Blessed are the merciful, for they'll receive mercy. If we're known as a people of mercy, we will know that we will receive mercy as well. But in extending mercy to others, we are showing them the compassion of Christ. Now, we don't approve of their sin. In John chapter 8, a woman was brought to Jesus who was taken, and they told him, taken in the act of adultery. He didn't condemn her. He showed her mercy as he showed their hypocrisy. They didn't bring the man, for one thing, that the law required. So he said, you who are without sin, cast the first stone. They knew their sin and not bringing the man. They knew that they couldn't do anything. And while there may have been some young Jewish, just become a male, just passed into manhood, you know, that would have... Gladly had a stone in his hand, pick it up, but the elders quickly realized, and the accuser realized, they couldn't. They let her go, because they all left. And he said, neither do I condemn you, but go and sin no more. He showed her mercy, but he challenged her to change her life. Being pure in heart. Focusing on the things of God, how he would have us to live our lives. Not on the things of this world. Not be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of your minds. Being a peacemaker. Wanting to extend that peace between God and our fellow man. Of course, then, it would also behoove us, I think, to take a quick look at uh, Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. The fruit of the Spirit. Some of these are... in. The same, we have peace there. But he said, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us walk by the Spirit. Love. Loving one another. Joy. Living a life of joy because we're children of the King. We have nothing to worry about. Living a life of peace, as we talked about in the Beatitudes, a life of patience. You know, sometimes people get on your nerves and it's hard, but be patient. Circumstances are sometimes hard. Be patient. God's still in control. He'll be with you. Kindness. All of us can show kindness to one or two others, to one another. We can express. We can live lives of good, holy conduct. We'll be faithful. Lives of gentleness, lives of self-control. That's how we live. Those are some earmarks of Christian character. And we could spend hours talking about those. Christian character. And then I like what Paul said as we come to a close on that idea. Paul said in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8, If you're going to live a life of character, it starts here perhaps. We look at those Beatitudes, they build on one another. We look at the fruit of the Spirit that we're supposed to be doing, but Paul tells us how to do it. He says, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, 
whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Again, a mind transformed by Christ, dwelling on these aspects of life, on these things. Why? Because it will become your character. You will embody it, and you will attract people. They'll want to know how you do it. How do you live this way? And when you show them and you help them with their walk in Christ, they'll do it as well. And then finally, a walk. And when I think of a walk, I think of a walk of consistency. So consistency, if you're wanting down the points, is commitment, character, and consistency. Our walk is daily. John in his letter, his first letter, in 1 John chapter 1, he told us you know, that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness. If we say we have fellowship with God and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, the blood of His Son Jesus cleanses us from our sins. A walk, it's daily. It is progression. So there's a consistency about it. If you go for a walk and you stop, for any reason, are you walking? Not at the point in time that you stop. If you're trying to get to a destination way down there, a mile, two miles, 50 miles, however far it is, if you turn around and go back, are you doing your walk? Well, you may be walking back home, but you're not doing your walk to your destination. Because that was your goal way out there, not behind you. So we look forward and we press on. It's our walk. How do we do that? We know that we walk in the light of Christ. But how do we do it? The Hebrew writer said, after showing the honor roll of all the faithful of God who lived and walked by faith, he says in verse 6 of chapter 11, he said, and Without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that is a rewarder of those who seek him. He lists all of these people, starting with Abel, Noah, Enoch, Abraham, many, many others. And he said in verse 32 of 11, he says, And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets. Of all these people who conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions. And he goes on and on. They were faithful. They were consistent in their walk. He says, therefore, verse 12, chapter 12 and verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance, consistency, not giving up, fixing the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the goal, the author and perfecter of the faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God, at the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The walk isn't going to necessarily be easy. There are going to be challenges along the way. But he says, 
I do this, I tell you these things. As you focus on Jesus and what he went through, and he saw it to the very end. He did it for you. He did it for me. He doesn't want you to lose to lose heart. He doesn't want you to grow weary in your walk. You focus on Jesus because he's the person out there that you can see and fix your eyes on. I like to listen to motivational speakers time to time. People who have been there and met adversity and have overcome. Because they are inspiring. That they have so much against them. They never gave up. But they just kept on. There was some drive within them that they told, no, you can't do that. They'd do it, they'd do it anyway. They just proved that we need to be consistent in our walk. You know, the song that we did for the before the communion, When My Love for Christ Grows Weak, I asked Jim to lead that. He says, it acknowledges that at times that the walk's going to be a struggle. When my love to Christ grows weak, then the acknowledgement, when for deeper faith I seek, then in thought I go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Why would the songwriter take us there? Because that was the toughest time, if you will, for Christ. He prayed, Father, if it be, if it be possible, let this cup pass. But not my will, but your will be done. There I walk amid the shades, while the lingering twilight fades. See that suffering, friendless one, weeping, praying, there alone. You know, the shades, the twilight, it's getting tough, I don't like it. But I see Jesus in the garden, weeping, praying, by himself. His disciples had fallen asleep. When my love for man grows weak... They've let me down. They've betrayed me. They've stabbed me in the back. When for stronger faith I seek. Hill of Calvary I go to do thy scenes of fear and woe. They betrayed Jesus. One of his twelve betrayed him. And he still went through to the cross. There behold his agony suffered on the bitter tree. See his anguish, see his faith, love triumphant still in death. You know, I see him there. In my mind's eye. I read about him in scripture. And I know I can do it because he did it. Love triumphant. Still in death. Then to life I turn again. Learning all the worth of pain. Leaning, learning all the might that lies. In a full self-sacrifice. Jesus sacrificed. He gave his life on a cross that we might live. So that we might live today with him. And tomorrow, when he comes, live with him. Consistency. That's the walk that he's called us to. Four times in scripture he's told us. Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 4, I think it's verse 17. Walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Walk in a manner worthy of Christ. In Ephesians 4... Colossians chapter 1, Philippians chapter 1, and 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, I believe it is. Four times he talks about walking in a man, not that we're worthy of Christ, but that we look to him who is worthy and we walk in a manner that will honor him.
a manner worthy of his calling us, worthy of the gospel that brought us redemption. So today, let's the first day of the new year. Mark the day that's day we decided. I'm going to live a life of commitment to Christ in 2017. My life of commitment will be marked by a renewed character that I will grow in the graces of God and the character that He describes for me to live by. And I will do it consistently. I will do it day by day. Sometimes the day may be baby steps. And some days it will be running. Some days it will be soaring with the eagles. But I will always be walking. But there may be some that have not started their walk with Christ. Only you know how you stand before Him. Maybe you haven't obeyed the gospel and you know that you need to. His call is to you to come and have your sins washed away. It may be that you've done that at one time, but, well, let's put it this way. The world tried to conform you into its image and not allow you to be conformed to the image of Christ. But you know that you need to make a change. It's a great day to do it. Any day is a great day to do it as long as it's before the trumpet sounds. Today is the day. If you need to respond to the invitation of Jesus, won't you please come to Him while together we stand and sing.